Station, CBN, FM, 80, I can't talk, um, Ann Arbor, WC, CBN, um, it's 4.30, and it's sad, because I want you to listen to Guns N' Roses, but we have to back announce and tell you what you've been listening to. What track is this? Louder. You're crazy. Yeah, yeah, you're crazy. Um, before that, you heard ACDC with Big Balls, the Divinals with I Touch Myself from Austin Powers, my robot friend with Walking Jewish, the Klezmatics with Schwarz und Weiss, the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars with Coney Island Whitefish, Noel with I Am Walking, I Am Smoking, that was the band from St. Petersburg, um, Manu Chow with Mary Blues, uh, how do you pronounce that? Piat- Piatnitsa, meaning Friday, with Solda. Uh, the Detroit Cobras did Cha Cha Twist, and Cat Power started off, started us off with Living Proof. Stay tuned for the Living Writers Show, which is coming up soon. And um, yeah, I'll see you guys next week. I love you, Ann Arbor. WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. Welcome to the Living Writers Show. On the schedule today is the poet Rebecca Black, and unfortunately, due to a series of traveling mishaps, she is stranded in Cleveland. And so instead, today we we will be rebroadcasting the fall 2005 interview with Patrick O'Keefe. And it comes at a really good time, because just last month, Patrick O'Keefe was awarded the Story Prize, which comes with it. It's it's a prestigious fiction prize, which comes with it the largest cash award um, that is made in the U.S. for fiction prizes. So please stay tuned. This will be Patrick O'Keefe talking about his book, The Hill Road. What good am I if I'm like all the rest? If I just turn away when I see how you're dressed. Let's talk about your book. Let's just go straight in. Um, do you want to tell us? It's, it's fiction. Yeah, it's fiction, which means it's made up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a collection of four novellas. Uh, they're all set in a fictional uh, townsland or parish in southwest Ireland uh, called Kilroan. And... Um, I suppose it's really stories about different people in the community, but it, it also there's a lot of time involved from the 50s to the 80s, 
actually even there's a, a World War One story in there. So, so it's more kind of about families and love and failure, that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, great. Let's let's hear from the f- the title story, the Hill Road. Um, there's a, toward the end of the story. There's a, there's a funeral. We'll, we'll get right into the heart of families. Will you read okay. for us? Yeah, I will. Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, the end section of the Hill Road, and it's a it's a wake actually. So. And a cool breeze came from out of the fields, the smell of the bog withered, a hint of autumn in the breeze, the sun skimming the trees and the sunlight slanting along the yard through the tops of her flowers and shrubs, crows cawing, then lifting out of the poplar trees in the paddock beyond. I turned from the men to watch them, dark rags in the sky, never saw them like that before, will till I die see them this way. Not a bad life at all, Nora Carmody had. Sure she'll be with everyone she knows now. Could be an awful lot worse. The people starving in Africa. They have too much of the sun and we don't have half enough of it. It's never just right, it looks like. The young ones are good all right with their trochra boxes. I see them putting the pennies in. You have to hand it to them there. That's the truth. He was certainly well up in years when he met her. A lucky man he was to meet her. Here's the parish priest now. Have to stand up out of the chair now. Have to get up out of it for him. How are you, father? That's a grand new car you're driving, father. And you didn't even wear down the wheel, the tires of the old last one. You might as well if you can, father, huh? How are them racehorses keeping it all, father? God bless every last one of them. I went down into the room later. They would not wander in here anymore. They had done this part of it. In a few hours, they'd put her in the coffin and take it to the church. Tomorrow, after the Mass, Dan and me and Rome and John would shoulder the coffin, lower it into a hole in the ground underneath the trees. Down there with the rest of them, where their flesh was changed to clay, which nourished the roots and the white blossoms, made the thick skin of the haws red. Her curtain before me filled out like a sail. The candle on the night table next to her bed was almost burned out. I pinched a wick between my fingers. Her body was lean, tidy beneath the dark quilt. Kate had powdered her face and dab rouge on her cheeks. Mary had balled up paper hankies and stuffed them inside to fill her cheeks out. A box of matches that Dan had tucked underneath her chin concealed with the quilt to hold her chin up so that her face was toward the ceiling. The crucifix on the wall above her the scapulars and the medals still around her neck, the rosary beads like a crown in her joint hands. Ma, I whispered, sitting on the edge of the bed, watching down at her. Ma, I said loudly, and my own voice came back to me. I wanted to kiss her face, stoop and kiss it, but I couldn't. Although I had a glass of whiskey in me, she was gone, her blood was, and all this pageantry, to have to endure it, just so that others can have a bit of a get-together, celebrate the life of the dead you or they don't know a thing about, their poor mother not long after their father. Oh, to be alone, to be alone and far away from all of them, back in my flat in Dublin and dancing on a Saturday night after work, pissed and holding a girl against the wall to the pounding music, my posters of Bob Dylan and the Smiths above my single bed, listening to my records, reading sentences from my books, my shirts hanging in the wardrobe, 
my clean underwear and socks in the truck drawer, my worn pair of shoes inside the door. Next to the meter, I fed the fifty pences into, so that there was light and heat. The door of the sixteen bus hissing when it stopped at the bus stop on Drumcondra Road, then, rev- then revving up, dragging a plume of black smoke after it, whose smell remained in the air above the Talca River for hours, drifting to my window. That was all I wanted. The sun was fully sunk, and the light was going out at the field. The curtain still swollen. The blue walls, the body, the insufferable present, give me anything but now, a car on the pad taking off, off home to milk the cows, the gravel spitting up underneath the car. I got up from the bed and went to the window and pulled the curtain back along the rail, my sisters crying, saying goodbye to a neighbour in the hall. I opened the window out and took a smoke from my shirt pocket and lit it up, leaning my elbows upon the windowsill. The edge of the sky above the trees streaked bluish and grey, the cows and the calves lying down for the night, following routine. Life would be tolerable if you were one of them. Their pain was in the moment, then forgotten. She was gone, and the world was changed. If I only had the balls there and then to go into the toilet take the blade from Dan's razor and make one orderly cut on each one of my wrists in the kitchen in a day or two that have another get-together. All those delicious sandwiches met and eaten in my honour, bottles drained and cups of tea drank. That wouldn't land me up above with them. I'd be sent down below. Albert was there, the balls that Albert had, my first hero, the one who went away and came back home and then fell to pieces, the one who was the devil's, the one they couldn't kill who had to kill himself. But it was probably the coming back home that killed him. No end to it ever, it looks like Jack, as Rome Kelly would say, and all Albert was now was clay, as my father and my aunt were clay, and soon my mother. For there was no down below or up above, there was only the clay. I raised my hands and waved goodbye to the cows. I didn't say goodbye to the fields and the trees. This was Nora Carmody's world. She and my Carmody met it, Adam and Eve Carmody, the Easter Rising, the Civil War, the Six Counties, the Irish Republic, the Troubles, the Small Farmer, put up the ditches and made the gaps and ploughed the field, milked the cows and had their children, listened to the priests and de Valera and all those who came after him, praying like they were the chosen ones. I flicked the ashes out the window. For her it had always been about the other side, for to suffer meant he had picked you out. The man above had, one of his personal favourites. Hail, Queen of Heaven, the patience of Job. Go on back, would you so? Go on. Go on back to where I hope you'll find him and every single one of them. Rome should be up there with you before long. Here was nothing. Here was clay and cancer, blood and a very big mess. People blowing each other to bits till the end of time. Stupid shite, a waste of time pestering myself back and forth and over and back and where will any of it lead you to Jack Carmody no place mind your job always thank you very much (laughs) wonderful Um, gosh you've just done something so impressive there that it's hard to even articulate a meaningful question Um, you spanned much of Irish history um, in recent memory and um, 
you've spanned generations of this family and you've got a lot of sort of dense stuff woven together as you do with the book. The, the four novellas work together to sort of paint this portrait of the town over much time. Will you talk a little bit, bit about your process for um, doing that? Well, I mean, with this story, that part of it came quite late in the story when the story was actually written. And well, it wasn't written because obviously this wasn't written. But um, I mean, uh, you kind of have to write a lot to get something. And sometimes, particularly with that, I mean, and this is kind of dramatically in art in some in some way within the story, right? But I think it was the amount of time I spent with it. I mean, the, the whole project, the whole thing was in my head for quite a few years when I was writing it. But I didn't even know it was a book. In some way, I mean, I was just writing the stories individually. And then when I showed it to somebody who was interested in it, uh, she said, oh, she goes, you've written a book. And I'm like, I have. And she's like, yeah, well, I'm like, that's great. So <laughs> <How> <laughs> let's fortuitous. see if we can get it published. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's send it out then. <laughs> <laughs> let's send it out, yeah. But... Uh, but I, I think, you know, because I had spent so much time with it, you tend to get to know the details and, and those characters and that become a little bit familiar to you and the voice of it. And I suppose in that particular passage and in, in the narrator in this story, to me, he's he, well, he's like, you know, he's responding to grief, but I don't think he's particularly, he's not an intellectual person. He's, a, he's really somebody who's responding to things with feelings rather than something that he's aware mm-hmm. of yet, you know, because he's quite young and, you know, not particularly schooled in, in certain ways, you know. So you're, you're always trying to be true to that voice. Who is this person without violating it? But at the same time, you're trying to make a story and make it interesting to people. Yeah. Great. Well, let's um, take a little breather. Okay. Let you catch your breath. And no. um, we'll play a little music for a second and be right back. Okay. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My guest is Patrick O'Keefe, and this is Ashley David. show. My name is Ashley David. My guest is Patrick O'Keefe, and we're talking about his book, The Hill Road. Um, we were just listening to the Smiths, and we started off the show with a bit of Dylan. Um, both are mentioned in the passage you just read, and um, both were sort of choices off the top of your head. Let's, yeah, I let's didn't play. even think about what that. What were you That's thinking? <laughs> I did bring that music up the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's a nice... nice um, Nice sort of serendipity because I I pulled that passage out not thinking about the music either and I yeah. got to the station today and I was like well here we are there we go God that's beautiful <laughs> so let's talk the the book spans um, there's a there's a World War One episode yeah. and then it comes to the eighties um, 
will you talk a little bit about the ways in which the four novellas work together to um, convey this long span of history in the village? Yeah, I suppose what I was really interested in, particularly uh, when it was the four stories together and when I went back in there to rewrite it, I was I was a bit more conscious. Well, I was quite conscious, I think, of uh, trying to draw them together a little bit more. And I don't know if it's entirely successful, but, um, I mean, I, I grew up there in the... I mean, I was a t- child. You grew up on the in County Limerick. Yeah, yeah, yeah on the boards of Limerick and Tipperary in, in uh, like late sixties, early seventies. I mean, I was a kid then, so I'm giving away my age. But that's fine. <laughs> but uh, and it was a world that was still very slow to change. I mean, it's not the kind of modern Ireland that you hear about now. This kind of Celtic tiger and this, you know, that's really kind of like the U.S. or something. But uh, and now very secular, which is a good thing. But uh, um, and those influences actually were very much in my life. Those, like the way my—I mean, my parents were very religious, and those kinds of influences. And they were farmers, and you know, I grew up with a granduncle in my in the house. He was like born in the 1885, and he lived through a huge period of that history, particularly during the Civil War, which he, he was actually involved in, and, and all that kind of stuff. So. And when I sat down to write, I mean, when I came to this country when I, and when I started writing in my late 20s, uh, I just always would go back there for some reason. Particularly, um, I mean, I essentially left there at 16 or 17, apart from visits going back. But um, when I sat down to write the, the details of the plays, and it would just become very p- powerful to me as I wrote. And, and the, I mean, often the more you write, you kind of start remembering these details even more and you don't even realize they're there, right? You're like, oh, God, I forgot that, but that, that's kind of interesting. I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, that you're just putting in details for the sake of detail, but it's, it's important for me in writing that I see the surface of that world, you know? I, I want to see the surface of the world. And particularly here, and I think I, I wanted to get that in there, you know? And, uh, and I wanted to see people over time and... Uh, and I wanted to tell stories, I suppose. Well, in your writing, one of the big themes that runs through the book is this change. Um, and the change not only within sort of individual characters and the arcs of their lives, but, yeah. but within the village. You, you mentioned just now that, that the Ireland of your childhood yeah. and the Ireland of a, lot of, of a lot of the characters in here is a very different Ireland than the Ireland of today. You were yeah. just back in Ireland last winter, was, was there it? this summer, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff, I mean, the countryside looks the same. There's just like a lot of new houses and stuff. Probably in 10 years there'll be McDonald's everywhere. But, um, I mean, it's not something I was doing consciously. I mean, I didn't think as a writer, oh, this is my team or this is what I want to do. I mean, I was just trying to... De- that that The way people change over time, and I mean, or the way the world, the way our society changes seemed to be very interesting, I suppose, to me in some way. Yeah. How you're writing from the U.S. You've been here now for roughly half of your life, no? Well, I've been here since uh, 89, although I, li- well, I lived here for a year and a half in 86. I lived in Boston, yeah. So you've been in and out. So you're writing from the position of someone who's emigrated, and yeah. immigration is a theme that, that runs throughout the book yeah. as well. And, and during a lot of the period that's covered, there's massive um, immigration. There was, yeah. What's Not what's now. your relationship to well now now Ireland has the <laughs> fastest growing economy in Europe I believe we should all um, go back <laughs> yeah we're we're all going to be headed for jobs <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> interesting situation to be yeah. in then um, 
as an you're you're writing as an immigrant, you're you're talking about this immigration. Mm. Um, how how does that? You're an Irish writer in the U.S. Can you speak to sort of your place and displacement and location? Well, I I mean I couldn't say that I was consciously thinking of myself or whatever that is as an Irish writer in terms of nationalism or stuff. I mean I don't. Well, I guess that's a fair question. Then, do you think of yourself as an Irish writer? No, I don't actually. But I can't not be that because nobody will let me be otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, obviously, well, no. But I mean, the subject matter. I mean, people would say, "Well, what do you mean?" I mean, the subject matter is Irish rural life, which has been written about in in depth in some ways, right? But uh, but also, this was the. I mean, I'm not saying like the but like some of the details in this was the life that I lived when I was young, and it just seemed to be uh, in trying to create fictions that 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 that's what interested me then now if i were to write again i might write about something very different but i think it's good to be away from it to to write you know because then you can make it up right yeah. <laughs> it's much easier to make up when it's well, not it in is, your yeah face. of course yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you can, it's, you create it in your head right or something yeah so well, and you've been compared um, to Alice Munro and, and William Trevor, <laughs> which is just a, an incredible... I certainly didn't make that comparison. <laughs> no, but it's an incredible compliment. It and is I don't, an incredible compliment, And I think yeah. it's deserved. Um, but Thanks. but one of the, the wonderful things in the bit I read about the comparison to Trevor was that you are distinguished from, that you're doing something that is decidedly own, your own. It's not that yeah. you're sort of walking in their footsteps and, and wearing their shoes, if yeah. to just take a metaphor way out the door. Yeah. Um, but you're doing something that's your own, and this sort of mixture of having one foot in the past and in a heritage that is Irish and the other foot and actually all of yeah. you sitting here in the States writing, um, do you think that has something to do with the, the the spin you have that is Patrick O'Keefe as opposed to in the footsteps of? Well, I mean, I love Trevor's work. It's really good. I mean, particularly some stuff really sticks out to me as being the most important stuff I've ever read, you know. But he was also very interesting. I mean, he was raised, he's from like 20 miles where I come from. He's from, he was born in County Mitchellstown. He's born in Mitchellstown, which is in County Cork, which is a kind of a rural, it's, a, it's kind of a big town. It's a big farming town. But he was also, a, he's what I think he calls himself like a, a lace curtain Protestant. He was like, which is a very small minority in that area, you know. And I think often when I read him, I mean, my favorite story of his is actually um, reading Turgenev which is a novella in the Two Lives collection. But um, I think one of the things that made him a writer was he was such an outsider there. I mean, I don't. I think he actually really he speaks really well of it. He was educated by the nuns and all that, and, and they didn't force religion on him or anything. But uh, I haven't answered your question at all, have I? Well, <laughs> actually you have, and you just really got to something that was interesting to me, which is that you, you brought in, once again, this outsider notion. Um, Trevor was an outsider in that he was a Protestant in a, v- a very small minority of Protestants yeah, in a very, very Catholic few, yeah. Um, yeah. Irish yeah. part of Ireland. Yeah. And, and uh, a post, like, 1920s kind of, you know, yeah. yeah. And you're an outsider in that you um, were raised in Ireland in a very traditional way in a Catholic family in the country on a dairy farm. Yeah. and have. But left. I didn't feel like an outsider when I was living there. Well, I no. did, I suppose. But did you? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I wanted to get away, to be honest. I've always, you know, I mean, I've never, I don't have any regrets about any of that kind of thing. You know, it's what I wanted. Did you know, you it's also what I long for. I mean, that's the, that, in, that kind of, that kind of conflict is really interesting. I mean, it's something that, that I'm, 
becoming more aware of because you want to be part of it, but you really don't want to be part of it. Or you can't not be part of it, but there are certain things about it I really miss, perhaps. Particularly, I think the landscape is what I miss. Yeah, and just the way uh, people talk, you know. How how do they talk? I mean, uh, what sort of <laughs> what sort of is it is it a, th- a thematic or a, um, a, a social moray that you're referring to? Yeah, or? yeah. I mean, particularly when I, I mean, when, particularly when I was growing up. I mean, people were people were mostly very polite, you know, and well mannered, and they didn't, and certainly like socially, you know, like people didn't get pregnant outside of marriage and stuff like that. It was quite strict. The church had a very was very important. I mean, people did live by the church, and that's what the schools was were about too, in some way. But um, but people, I don't know. Is it like people find ways to subvert things when they really, you know? Do you know what I mean? That there's there's I, I'm not quite sure how to express this actually. Well, your characters <coughs> do a lot of sort of subverting in their own yeah. sorts of ways. They're there, can you tell us? There's there are a couple of examples. Well, they jab at people a lot, I think, right? Like verbally, right? And uh, they like to be humorous. Otherwise, I don't, somebody said to me the book is miserable. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's, uh, yeah, they like to be humorous and they like to be, uh, yeah, get at one another in, in funny ways, but sometimes maybe they'll just like being mean or something <laughs> you know well and there's also throughout the book um this this playing with of insider outsider are you yeah. from the village are you away from the village um and yeah. and the, the the code applies differently depending yeah. upon which side of that you're on yeah. um which was an interesting dynamic yeah. that that I imagine is changing now totally and i mean often too i mean what's it, what's been a big influence for me in this is that um I mean, that stuff is not necessary. I mean, fiction is not true, right? It's true in some ways. But uh, you don't want to look for fiction for, like, some kind of historic or whatever it is. But you want to look for human truth or something, right? But, um, I mean, I was really influenced. I lived in in the South for a while in Kentucky, in the Upper South, as they call it. But... uh, and I went to school there, and I read a lot of. I was, and I think because it was at a period in my life where I was starting to get involved in writing and, and intense reading and being really drawn to it. That, I mean, I read a lot of Faulkner and Adora Welty and uh, those kinds of writers. Flannery O'Connor, a little less, but, uh, and I just think I was. I think that has actually influenced me a lot as a writer because they were writing too about. They were writing about. Uh, cloistered communities, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I mean, this is true. People like the last story about the woman being <laughs> the girl on the, the girl who sung. I mean, I, I don't mean this facetiously, but that cam, I saw some images. There was a book released a few years ago of where, like, in the South, about the hangings, about the hanging Afri- African-Americans. Right, the lynchings. The lynchings, yeah. And it, the image was so brutal and powerful to me. I don't know how. I just, like, I mean, I couldn't, you know what I mean? In some way, it, I, it just became a part of my imagination, and I suppose you transform it in some way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was very, I mean, it was a cloistered community. It wasn't actually that unfriendly. I mean, they were quite polite to strangers, you know? Particularly Americans, because they had money. <laughs> <laughs> 
That may well switch around <laughs> soon. Well, wonderful. Well, let's take a short musical break again, and we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN-FM 88.3 in Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My guest is Patrick O'Keefe. We're talking about The Hill Road, and this is Ashley David. We'll be right back. sitting here with Patrick O'Keefe. My name is Ashley David, and you're tuned into the Listening Writers Show. Well, now it's time we talk about, we talked a little bit about origins and yours, but let's talk about your origins as a writer. You mentioned that you came to Kentucky when you were um, a teenager and went to school in Kentucky. Well, in my, actually, my 20s. In your 20s. Yeah, early to mid-20s, mid-20s. And had you been writing in Ireland, and then you came here to study writing? Or? Never. Uh, no, I wasn't, actually. Yeah, I wasn't. Um... You came here as an engineer. And yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going into investment banking, but I, I turned left. But, uh, <laughs> um, I was always, I mean, I always loved to read fiction, and I think that's the only, that's the very reason why I write. I was just totally, ever since I was young, I mean, that's what I liked. Is there a history of storytelling um, among your friends, family, you know, they always say that stuff about Ireland, right? They talk about the oral tradition and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I mean, certainly in this country, there's been a lot of... Uh, Irish writing has got a lot of attention always, right? Well, particularly, right, with Joyce and, and Beckett and Yeats, and those people are still very vivid. And and uh, so that was encouraging. I mean, I found that I was always really encouraged here to write, and I... But why did I write? Is that what you're asking? Sure, you can answer that one. That I don't know. Do I don't really write? know. I mean, it, it passes the time. Something to do on a Something winter Something to do evening. on a winter morning. Morning. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I went through a period, actually, probably in my 20s, where I probably spent two years where I just first 
had the time. I mean, mostly because of unemployment, actually. But I just read constantly, and it was the most amazing. It was just, it was just very trans- transforming for me. And read a lot of mostly American lit, actually, but also a lot of. I, I read widely and a lot of short stories, and I just read everything. And I just I, maybe it was maybe because I was new to the country and in quite a different place than I was used to. Maybe it was a way to alleviate that kind of isolation or something, you know. But books became a way for me to, to maybe, dare I say, escape or something, you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got great pleasure in it. And and you, you mentioned some of the Southern writers who have been yeah. an influence, um, and you've mentioned some of the Irish writers who have been an influence. Yeah. Um, are there other other particular sort of places from which you've drawn, drawn inspiration or, oh, or pleasure I mean, in reading? For most, I suppose, I mean, uh, Chekhov, of course, is wonderful. And, uh, um, I mean, just tons of American writers. I love Salinger. I mean, I'm so obsessed with uh, Franny and Zoe. And, you know, he's two books for years. I mean, when I was <clears throat> an undergrad, which was, I was kind of older, but I mean, I, you know, I just totally absorbed Carver, Raymond Carver. I still love him. I don't read him as much now, but you know, you go through those periods. I used to love a book by Ethan Cain called Emperor of the Air, which was his first book, I think, a collection of short stories. I mean, it'd be interesting to revisit it now, but I was just, so I was just constantly reading stuff, you know, and uh, particularly short stories. Yeah, or at a point it became particularly short stories, but uh, there's just so many. I've read in some way, but you don't really know who does. Oh, Alice Munro is my. I just think she's amazing, but everybody says that, so <laughs> totally unoriginal once again. But uh, she's just. Actually, the first time I read her, I, I threw her away. I couldn't get to her at all. What do you think it was? I think, the, truthfully, truthfully, when I look back on it, I have often thought about this, but I read that book, that collection, Friend of My Youth, and it begins with the story about the mother. I used to dream about my mother. And uh, and it it's just you know the voice it's just right on top of you, mm-hmm. you know you're you're asking you to get into it, and I think that was it. I think I just couldn't deal with that kind of maybe I was I was responding to it in some kind of emotional way or emotionally retarded way or something. <laughs> yeah. What do you think made it made it accessible ultimately then? What um, was um, it, and by emotionally retarded do you mean that? I shouldn't have said that. Well, the, well I'm going to ask you to clarify. Yeah. Did you mean that you you where your emotions were? It was hitting a chord, a nerve that you it was too raw. You couldn't couldn't deal with it at the time, or it wasn't hitting a nerve at all. And yeah, I think it wasn't hitting a nerve at all. Yeah, or maybe the other two. So I'm I'm not sure. One I, or the other. One or the other. In other words, but. Uh, but I've often had that experience with writers, actually, that you like, you got to read them, and then I tried to read them, and I wouldn't like them. And then, uh, you know, like a year later, you pick them up, and you're like, oh, my God, you know, why was I depriving myself of this? You know, it becomes, then it becomes overwhelming to you. So, I mean, I've often found with, with reading, definitely, um, that it depends very much on the mood I'm in. You know, if you want to get absorbed in something, if something is that good, do you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, I was actually reading some interview with is it Fre- Frederick Frederick Bush? He was uh, Fred Bush. He's a fiction writer, but he was saying that uh, he was just this stuck because I was reading it on the web yesterday. But he was talking about 
like what's going on in fiction? Is fiction not getting as much attention as it used to get, or are we not interested in what they call literary fiction or serious fiction anymore? I'm, I mean, I have no idea. I have, I have no comments on any of those things. But uh, and he was saying like that fiction is quite demanding. That to read, you know, that it can require a lot of you to 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 absorb yourself in it in some way. And I thought, oh, that's true because I've had that experience with it. And is it I mean, if it's good. I mean, if sometimes it's, it's bad, yeah. and it just doesn't matter. And that, yeah, yeah, you put that right aside. Yeah. But is it the emotional depth, the the structure, the language, um, the way the book's working sort of overall? What do you think it is that, I mean, I'm sure it's a combination of things, yeah. but what do you think, in this case, it was an emotional sort of chord that Monroe wasn't getting you, that, that yeah. later, later, later yeah. did grab you? Mm. Particularly you Open Secrets. I love that book of hers. I think it's amazing. Um, for in reading, I think like you're looking. I mean, now I think you you want, or I want, I want to be interested in what's going on, and I want it to be whatever this means. I want it to be well written, and that kind of attention is paid to it. And yeah, emotional. Uh, the, the, yeah, I read totally. I think I'm just. It's totally about emotion for me in some ways. Yeah. You teach now. I do, yeah. And um, so you're writing and teaching, and you have students who are yeah. are are undergraduates yeah um what do you tell how do you work with your students to to write and the kinds of issues they come up with well i don't get this one or it's not Mm. for me yet because that happens a lot Mm. um i found anyway that most of the things i read when i was an undergraduate did not make sense to me until yeah years years later later. i remember yeah, yeah like i mean if you're in a fiction workshop and you give undergraduates i mean this is different but maybe not necessarily for some grad students but like for example, you know, Lady with the Dog, the Chekhov story, right? I mean, you give that to undergrads and, you know, you can say this is most, the story is just kind of amazing, you know, there's just something in it <clears throat> and that uh, they don't see it. And I think a lot of it is they maybe, p- perhaps they don't see it because it. I think it is something that you have to per- maybe be a little bit older or to have felt something or to understand the relationship between those two people, maybe. Or the stories will be very different the first time you read it and the time you read it. But I read that. I mean, like, for example, that story, Lady with the Dog. I remember I read it, like, two or three times in my late teens because everyone was saying, you know, I remember in Dublin, I was hanging out with students, like, you got to read Chekhov (laughs) in Dublin. (laughs) Then you had to read Chekhov and listen to Bob Dylan if you were a student. And the Smiths. (laughs) And the Smiths. (laughs) (laughs) And watch Woody Allen movies. But, uh... But then, I don't think I ever fully got that story till much later in my life. Or I never fully got the emotional impact of that story, you know. How do you work with your students, then, to get them engaged <coughs> at a level that makes sense for... I mean, I imagine that anything I read now that I think I'm getting, I may also get differently yeah. in another 10 yeah, years. Of course, so yeah. there's, all, there's something about where a person is at the time. Um, you were mentioning before we started the interview that it was hard for you to revisit your own book right now, having oh, read it's it awful, and yeah. put it to bed, yeah. and, and now you're on a book yeah. tour. It's like the love affair is over. Yeah. So how do you start the love affair for your students? If um, Do they come to you with it already in full bloom, or, or are you having no, I mean, No, I mean, the, the, and I don't mean this in, in a mean way, but some students are obviously more interested in writing than others. Some students are obviously more passionate about it. Some are v- very talented, and uh, I love working with students actually who are really into reading. And they'll come in and they'll talk to you about what they're reading, and you know. And I love, I really enjoy reading 
other people's work, particularly I really enjoy reading students' work. I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to get at with them, if I can get it across, is that to pay attention to their language and to pay attention to how they're... Do you know, do you know what I mean? Just to, like, pay very close attention to what... You know, I mean, you see this in, in stories, like, where where there's some emotion or there's some wisdom or there's just something trying to be got a, got across or articulated, but it's just kind of half done or something, or it's just, like, hinted at, and I just, like, pay very close attention to language in some way. I mean... Like in fiction, you know, it takes us such a long time. It took me a long time to understand the revision. And, of course, it's all about revision. And now, I, I mean, it's all revision. Because, But that's when it's really interesting to me now, when I can go back in there and keep finding these new little places and new doors and new details that you can go into and new things about characters. And I just, I mean, that to me now has become so pleasurable, you know. And I had to learn that by keep doing it and doing it and doing it, you know. I don't mind taking time with it, actually. I'm not interested in results in some way. I try to be really into the process Process. of it. Yeah, yeah, I love being in it. I mean, it's also very, you know... It makes you miserable too, but it does. I mean, <laughs> well, you've mentioned that life could be worse. You could be splitting rocks, you know. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Um, as much as I love splitting rocks, I'd rather write. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned let's split other rocks. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that you're starting up your next project. Yeah. Um, so that's at a very different place than where you've been for yeah. the last year or so, yeah. revising the Hill Road in order mm. to get it ready to come out. Yeah. Um, are you splitting new kinds of rocks then? Now that you've I'm grown to, to love revision, how to. are you with starting yeah. up again? This is a, another, you know, Edward P. Jones, the the, the known world. Yes. Yeah, I was reading an interview with him, and he he said uh, the horrible thing about writing is is that when you're st- you're always at the bottom again. You know, like if you finish a piece and it's done, he's like, it's not like you've. I mean, maybe there are things you learn about craft and that, and there are certain things, you know. But he said when you're starting, when you just go back to that blank page again at the beginning, he said you're just starting all over again. You have to go through the same kind of thing. I mean, maybe some things are learned, but, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually kind of scary, and and uh, and uh, I don't feel, I mean, in some way, I don't, I don't necessarily feel more confident or I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned some things, I think, just through the process of it, some things like craft-wise and that, and maybe more confident in, in taking things on. I'm older, you know. So older and wiser. I wouldn't say wiser. <laughs> well, all right, then we'll just go back to older. Older and older. Older and older. <laughs> to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The interview that you just heard was pre-recorded in the fall of 2005. We rebroadcast it today because Patrick O'Keefe was just awarded the Story Prize, which is the uh, cash award in the U.S. that comes with the, the largest cash award, that is, um, for fiction that's awarded annually. It's, a, it's an amazing prize and a wonderful achievement and accomplishment. So congratulations to Patrick O'Keefe. We hope you've enjoyed today's show. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM. Lots of good stuff comes your way 24-7. And um, we will be back next week, same time, 4.30 to 5.15, for another installment of The Living Writers Show.